Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Kuf Chedem Aleph by the two dots. The Gemara is quoting from the Mishnah that Mechayev Ba'of, with regards to those, it's clear a Chovel Ben is Chayav because they definitely have skin. And if they have skin, then someone who injures them or wounds them and you have a pulling of the blood there, then that for sure is Chovel B'Shabbat and be problematic. Now the Gemara uses that as a platform to understand that Chayot and Ofot then have skin and has implications in other places in Allah. And that's what Rav Huna says. Am Rav Huna Kutvin Tfilin or shall oftor. You can write fill in on the skin of a fowl as long as it is a kosher species of fowl. Amar of Yosef, my kamashmalon, did or? What is he telling us that we didn't know already that birds have skin? Tanina, that's our Mishnah, Chayav. So we know for sure that they have skin. If they have skin, then why can't they be used for fill in? So a student Abaye says them He's teaching us a lot of information here. If we just had our Mishnah, we would have thought because it has lots of holes in it, meaning that after you've plucked the feathers away from the skin, it leaves behind all of these piercings in the skin, and therefore it would not be good to be used for tefillin. Kamash Malon, Rabuna comes to teach us that you can still use it for tefillin despite all the holes in the skin, because the Amri Marava, like they say in Eretz any hole where, when you write and the ink covers it up, ain't no nekev. That's not considered to be a nekev. The problem with the nekev, or problem with the hole in the hide, is that then it causes a break in the letter. And a letter has to be what's called mukaf gvil. It has to have clear cloth all the way around the letter. And the letter itself needs to be whole, structurally whole, without any breaks in it. What happens is, if you have a hole, it usually causes a crack or a break in the letter. And then you don't have the tzurat So, in general, that would be a problem if the hole is big enough. If the hole is small, this is true by hides, and it's going to be true here by the skin of the birds as well, which is that the holes are small enough by which if you move the quill over those holes, the ink will fill the holes and the letter will be continuous, then that's not a problem anymore. And that's what the Kamash Malan is, that here, even though there are holes in the skin from plucking out all the feathers, nevertheless, it's still considered to be a good skin for writing filling on, because when you go over those holes, they'll be filled with ink and then you'll get the complete letters that you need for the Ketiva Tama. And that makes a ktivat tamad, that you need to have a full and structured writing that is complete. The letter has no breaks in it, and there are no problems with the letter. So you thought that that might be a failure because of all the holes in the skin. Kamash Malan, that it's not. Rabbi Zeir says, We have the postuk that is written by the Kurban Olat Ha'of. And it says there that Vishisa Uto that you will grab it by its wings and tear it apart, but not completely separate it. And then you put it on the Mizbeach. So here, if it is considered to be skin, then why would the Posuk include it to go on the Mizbeach? The assumption being that there'd be some parallel between the birds, the Bnei Yonah, and the Torim that go on the Mizbeach, and the animals that go on the Mizbech. When it comes to an animal, an Ola goes on the Mizbech, but the hide is given to the Kohanim. The hide doesn't go on the Mizbech. So here too, why would you think that the skin of the bird should go on the Mizbech? The fact that the Torah tells you to put the skin of the bird onto the Mizbech seems to imply that it is not classified as skin because the paradigm that we're using by animals indicates that you don't need to put the skin on the Mizbech. It goes to the Kohanim. 
Now, the truth is that this question is not just really on Rav Huna, because Rav Huna just said that the ore of the oaf can be used for its fill-in, saying that the skin of fowl is considered to be skin. But the Mishnah says the same thing, that skin of birds is considered to be skin as well. So the question really should be equally problematic for the Mishnah as it is for Rav Huna. So the Maharsha over here suggests that if it were just for the Mishnah, we would assume that the skin of the birds goes on the Mizbeach, because the skin of the birds is not a hole. It has these punctures, these holes in it when you remove the feathers from it. So it's not something of significance that you would give to the Kohanim, and that's why you would put on Mizbeach. But now that Rav Huna says it is considered to be significant, significant enough that we allow you to write fill-in with it, then that already indicates that the holes are not a problem, and it's considered to be an entity. If it's a separate entity, why then does it not have the same din as the hides of the animals? Samalei Abaye, or who? Rahman the simple answer that Abayi gives is, yes, it is considered to be skin, but the Torah says that you still put the skin on the Mizbeach. And as the Bali Tosafot point out, that's not the only thing that goes on the Mizbeach. When it comes to the Olat Oaf, the Apostle before says, the only thing you remove from the Olat Oaf is, Hesirat Muratob and Otsata. Vishlichota, Itzlam Mizbeach, Kedmal, Makom Adoshin. The only thing you take out is the digestive tract of the animal. That means that the feathers themselves also go on the Mizbeach. And all the other parts of the bird go on the Mizbeach. So why is it a surprise that the or goes on the Mizbeach? So Tosafot says that by the animal we also have a paradigm like that as well. Which is that certain parts of the animal, like the hair and the horns and other pieces of the animal, go on the Mizbeach when they're brought together with a particular aver limb of the animal, including the head of the animal. Or certain times we leave on the hair or the wool of the animal because it's attached to something. So you see that the Torah doesn't reject that type of offering, and so to over here, the feathers would not be rejected. On the other hand, when it comes to the or, there the Torah specifies by animals that you have to do have shape, that you have to do a flaying of the animal to take the or off. And over here too, you should have done that flaying to take it off. The Gemara's answer, or Abai's answer, is very simple. Yes, it is or. Yes, it's considered to be a separate entity, but the Torah says... With regards to birds, that goes on the Mizbeach, and there is no question. Higadamre, another version of this is, Amrabzera Afanan Namitanina, Rabizera rather than challenging Ravuna, brings support to Ravuna's position because of this Braita, Tanina Bichnafav, there are both Eto or that the Knafav include the or, meaning that the skin of the birds goes on the Mizbeach. Yamar Bishlama Oru, if it's considered to be skin, that's why you need a posuk to include it, because you wouldn't have automatically assumed it goes on the Mizbeach, because hides don't go on the Mizbeach, skin is separate from the Basar, so you would have thought maybe that part of the bird shouldn't go on the Mizbeach. If you thought that the skin was just part and parcel of the Basar, of the flesh of the bird, why do you need a pasuk to come in and include it? So Abayi here again says that you might have thought otherwise. Maybe it isn't considered to be skin. And you still need the pasuk to tell you to put it on the Mizbeach, even though then it would be one with the Basar. Since it has in it all these punctures, it's the same thing as we saw before with regards to the tefillin of nikveh, nikveh, pirtze, pirtze, meaning that it's not something that is whole or shalem. It is something that's perforated all over because of the feathers that stick in it. Mice, it's something that isn't appropriate or disgusting to put on the mizbeach, and therefore you would have thought that it shouldn't go on the mizbeach, kamash malan, that you do put it on the mizbeach. So you can't bring either a question or a proof from the bright that with regards to the lato of, but... 
Ravuna's position still stands, which is that you can write tefillin on the or shalof, because or shalof is classified as or, and it's classified as skin or a hide, that's sufficient grounds to write tefillin on such an item, because the Mishnah tells us that a or of an oaf is classified as or, as a skin or a hide that then would qualify it for having tefillin written on it, and we saw before as to why that's a chiddish, despite the perforations that you're able to write on it. Now let's extend this to another step. We know that you can do it on a behema, a chaya, or an oaf tahor. Now you can write tefillin. What about a doctor? What about kosher fish? Is the skin of a fish sufficiently classified as skin for in order to be used for writing tefillin on? So when Eliyahu and Navi comes, he'll tell us what it is. So Gemara says, What does this have to do with Eliyahu and Navi coming? As Rashi notes over here, because When it comes to making decisions about whether something is mutar, whether something is asur, tamay, tahor, all of these things are not subject to the rulings of Eliyahu and Navi because it's not up to the heavens to make those types of decisions. Those decisions, the Torah Shabbat was relegated to the Chachamim and the Mesorah, and therefore those decisions have to be made here. And whatever the decision is, that is the binding halacha, and Eliyahu Navi is not going to come and change that, both from the perspective of Loba Shemaimi, as well as from the perspective of Enavi Rashai the Chadesh Tavar. And Navi can't come along and bring us any new halacha or any new law. The law develops the way it does through the Mesorah. So that can't be what Eliyahu Navi is coming. Ilema. So Miami of Oliovar, what is he gonna come and say? Elaim, if you're gonna tell me he's gonna come and tell us factual information, which is something that Elio Bonavi could do, Elaim Adietle or Uidalaitle or maybe it has a skin or doesn't have a skin, Hachazina Adietle or. That's not a question. That's not something that we need Elio Navi to help us as to whether fish have skin or not. We know there is fish skin. That's obvious. That's not something that he's going to tell us that we don't know already. Mode, Hatnan. And also we have a Mishnah in Kelim, that says, Atzamot hadag ve'oro, when it comes to the bones of a fish, and the skin of a fish, matzilim bo'olamet, they are protective, they are able to stop tumah in olamet. The basic principle is, something that is mikabel tumah, something that can become tumah, eno chotzeitz bifnei tumah, doesn't stop tumah from spreading. On the other hand, something that is not mikabel tumah, it itself can stop tumah from spreading. So one of those classic examples is a klicheres, that is covered with samid patil. It's totally sealed on the top. Tuma in a house can't reach that because a clay cheres only accepts tuma from its internal side, not from its external side. And since the only thing that exposed in this house that has tumat mate in it, has uh, tumat oil in it, is the outer side of the clay cheres, it protects whatever is inside of it. But that depends on the fact that the clay cheres, which only accepts tuma internally, not externally, as well as that there's a seal or a cover on it, and so one of those items that is protective or can shield against tuma are the bones of a dog and the skin of a dog. That is, as opposed to other animals, because we have a riboy in the pasuk, that anything that's mikomase izim, anything that comes from the goats, is included to be mikabel tumah. And that includes kleetzem, things that are made out of the bones of the animals, as well as from the, the horns, the hooves, all the different parts of the animal. But there's a mute there that says it only applies to land animals, it does not apply to dagim. But given all that, what we do see from there is that the Mishnah clearly considers the skin of the dog to be something that is of significance because it delineates it separately and says skin of the dog. So it happens to be there that it's protective and it helps with tara. But it just shows you that we know there is skin to a dog. Ella. 
So what is Elio and Navi coming to help us with? So Zuma, when it's spoken about in the physical world, means something that is smelly, something that's malodorous. So that could be the one question. Is the disgusting, malodorous side of it disappear? And the Ron brings that those are explained. That means that before you tan or you process the skin of the fish, does that bad smell that's associated with the fish disappear already from all the oils and all the things that are in the skin? And therefore, when you process it, it's considered to be a good hide. Or does that zuhama, does that stay? That would be if you're speaking about physical items. There's also a metaphysical zuhama, which means something where there was a problem that caused some sort of tuma or metaphysical problem in the individual. And the Ran then quotes, based on that idea, that which the Gemara tells us that the Nachash Baal Chava in Ganeden and caused her to have zuhama which was removed at Har Sinai. And the question is, whose Zuma was removed at Har Sinai? Does it only include the human beings that stood at Har Sinai and all the animals that were a part of parcel or witness to the Har Sinai, but Dagim there in the Yam were not included, or maybe they were included, but that would be something very metaphysical. The Sfatimet takes a somewhat middle position here, which is that maybe by behemot, chayot, and ofot, that requires shechita, maybe that in itself is maledek dusha of the animal, and elevates it and takes away the zuhama, whatever negative metaphysical traits you have there, as a fish which doesn't have any spiritual, religious process that's done to it in order to prepare it to be food, maybe that doesn't have the zuma taken away from it, or maybe dagim don't need it, because they don't have the Zuma, and that's what the ONOV is going to answer for us, whether it is qualified to be used for Tefillin or not. Shmuel Okarno, Abiyatve Agudadinar Malko. Shmuel and Karno, they were sitting on the banks of the river Malko in Bavel. Chazino de Mayo de Kadolu Vaakire. They saw that the water was rising, and it was muddied or clouded, or maybe even a little turbulent. Amalei Shmuel de Karno, so Shmuel says, based on these signs, there's a big gun that's coming from Eretz Yisrael. And he has a stomach ailment, or he's having problems with his digestive system. So the waters are rising to greet him as he's coming here. Go smell him out to find out what type of Talmud Chacham he is. Rashi over here explains this in a more metaphysical way, and that is that the waters should have been still because there was no wind that day. Despite the fact that there was no wind, there were waves or there was movement in the water, seemingly indicating that the water was rising or something was changing in the character of the water. And Shmuel saw that as a sign that somebody was coming from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel of significance, and therefore the waters were rising to greet him. It is somewhat connected to the Gemara that we saw back on Samachay Amudbet, over there where the Gemara speaks about the Machok between Shmuel and Abu the Shmuel, and making the Mikvot, over there at Bishonim, and the Gemara discusses about the waters coming from Eretz Yisrael, that the rise in waters in Eretz Yisrael caused a rise in the waters in Bavel, and so that's why Shmuel saw in the rise in the water, must have been something that was coming from Eretz Yisrael, because that's the source of the water, or the rise of the water of the rivers in Bavel, and Tosafot discusses that in more detail, Back on Samachay Amudbet. And then Shmuel, being a doctor, as we're going to see later on in today's daf, knew that the turbulence or the mudding of the water 
was a sign that this person was having difficulty, and the waters were actually rising to protect him, as Rashi says over here, that the waters rose so that when he had to relieve himself over the side of the boat, people on the shoreline would not be able to see him because the waters had risen, and therefore it would create some sort of barrier or buffer between him and the shoreline. And so putting those pieces together, Shmuel figures out that there's a big gun coming, and he wants to know what type of big gun, or how big this gun is that's coming from Eretz Yisrael, and therefore he sends out Karno to go and sniff him out. That's the terminology that's used here. Generally, the Gemara uses the term bodigle. Over here, he uses tahile akankane, smell him, because Karna's job, or Karna's profession, was wine smelling. And so, therefore, he used the terminology that he was familiar with with regards to his profession in order to apply that to whoever was coming here to test them out. That's the way Raj explains it. The Balitosopho bring a different girsa from the Benu Hanano, and they have a much more rational explanation for this, which many of the Go'unim have a Mesorah that this was the case, which was that Shmuel knew that somebody big was coming from Eretz Yisrael. That information he already had ahead of time, and therefore he wasn't guessing about the fact that the waters rising meant somebody big was coming. He knew somebody big was coming, but he saw the waters that were rising, and they were muddied waters, and he says, uh-oh, here's somebody coming from Eretz Yisrael, and he's definitely going to drink from the river water, and this water is not something that's familiar to his digestive system, it's going to cause him a stomach ailment. And so Shmuel knew for sure, since he's drinking from the river, that that's going to cause him digestive problems. That was caused by the fact that the waters were rising or churning, and that was causing him to be muddied, and therefore it wasn't clear water or pure water, and that was going to cause a problem for whoever was traveling up. And he sent out Karna to check out what was this level of this individual because Shmuel was a doctor and he would provide services for him. So if he was a significant enough individual, Shmuel would take him home and treat him with a home visit to take care of him. So then he goes out, So he goes out and he finds that this is Rav. Rav, who was in Eretz Yisrael, who was a Talmud Muvok of Rabbi. So Karna went and he found that it was Rav, who was the big Gadol that was coming. Rav actually descended from Eretz Yisrael twice. He was born in Bavel, went up with his uncle Rabbi Chia to Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Chia never came back. He learned by Rabbi eventually in Eretz Yisrael, becoming one of his Talmudim Hamuvhakim there in Eretz Yisrael. He returns at some point to Bavel for a short period of time to Narda, then goes back to Eretz Yisrael. And this seems to be the second time that he comes back to Bavel, where then he establishes himself and changes Bavel into a Torah center when he sets up the yeshiva and surah. This seems to be that second time that he came back. In that situation, Karna was sent out by Shmuel to see who was this big gun that Rob that was coming. Again, each one, depending on whether you think it's Rashi, that he didn't know it was Rob and he was trying to figure out who it was, or Shmuel already knew it was a big gun and wanted to know who or what type of big gun it was. How do you know the fact that you can only write tefillin on a kosher animal? Because the Torah of Hashem should be in your mouth. That which is mutar to put in your mouth, that is what you can use for the tefillin, because the parshiot of tefillin are mentioned there in parshat bo. How do you know that blood is red? Because it says, Here is when there was an alliance between Israel, Yehuda, and Adom that were coming to attack Moab. And then Moab gets a mistaken impression because of the sun that was shining on the water that was coming, that there was some sort of breakdown in the alliance and that they had killed each other out. And Moab attacks thinking that there is nobody on the other side that's going to be able to fight them and they are shocked to find that everything's still intact and it was an optical illusion that had tricked them. But you see over there that the waters were red 
bloodied like dam. So you see that red is associated with dam, and both Rashi and Tosafot point out over here, even though the Mishnah Nido says that there are multiple colors that make dam into dam tmeah, they all are variations of red. For instance, the Gemara says with regards to black, that that is blood that was red, elalaka, that something went wrong with it, there's something that caused it to go black. And same with the other colors that are mentioned in the Mishnah in Nida. How do you know that Mila is performed on the male member? It says Orlato by Brit Mila in Parshat Shmini. And it says in Parshat Kiddushim, So you have Orlato, Orlato, Malalan Devasho Sepri. Just like there, by it's speaking about a tree that is fruit producing, so too by the human being, it's the area or the organ that is reproductive. Why does it have to be his member? Maybe it is his heart. Because the passage, that you will peel away the coverings or the thick skin that's around your hearts, then that would seem to be that orla is associated with lave, and therefore mila would be the peeling way of that orla. Or ema ozno, maybe it refers to his ear, because it says in the postulok in Yermio, that their ears are thickened or deafened to what you're saying, and therefore also mila maybe means clearing up the ear, or making it so that they can hear. So danin arlato tama merlato tama. And vein danim arlato tama merlato sheno tama. The word orlato in the Xer Shavir matches up exactly when you're using the noun orlato, not the noun phrase or the nismach of orlot levavchem or arela oznam. And you wouldn't cross reference orlato with either orlat or arela. Amrlay, so Rav realizes that Karna is testing him, trying to figure out who he is and whether he is worthy. Amrlay, my shmeich, says, what's your name? So he answers back, Karna, Amrlay, Yehei Rava, Yehiratzon, Detipoklei Karna Be'enei, that he should have a horn in his eye. He was upset by the fact that Karna was testing him. He must have believed that Karna knew who was Rav was and he was just testing him, or that Rav thought that he was already well known in Bavel, and therefore he figured that they would have known that he was a big gadol and they didn't need to test him. He was upset by the pretentiousness of Karna to come and test what he considers himself to be the gadol ador. So if I laid the Shmuel the Beite, so then they brought him in to be by Shmuel, who is the Gadol in Bavel before Rav arrives. Ochle, he as a doctor fed him Nama Desare, he gave him barley bread, the Casa de Harsenal, and fish hash, which is this cut up fish with brine together. Vashke Shikra, and he gave him beer, probably date beer to drink. And he didn't let him or didn't show him where the bathroom was. Nor did that all these items which are laxatives then would clear out his system by him churning inside of him until it clears out his whole system, and then finally show him the bathroom. Light Rav Amar, Rav curses and says, Whoever is causing me all this difficulty should have no children. And the Gemara says that's the way it was. Rav, the Gemara explains in other places, felt really bad of what we had done to Shmuel, and therefore he always gave Kobo to Shmuel to go in front of him because he felt bad that this curse could because of him had caused this problem for Shmuel. The truth is that we do say in other stories throughout Shas that Shmuel had daughters. The question is is whether those daughters were prior to this curse, and therefore when it says over here that Loluk Mulu Bambani, that he have no children, it means children in general, but his daughters were already pre this curse. Or does it mean Bane here means male children or male heirs? 
and he still had daughters afterwards, but he never had a male heir. And again, Rav felt bad about this. He didn't realize that Shmuel was doing it for his benefit, and therefore he cursed him despite the fact that it was for his benefit, and afterwards realizes that Shmuel was a doctor trying to help him out, but it's too late then because it's Kishkaga Sheyatsami Pia Shalit. It was as if he had a slip of the tongue, and a klala that comes from a Tamar Chacham, even though it's not justified, or even if it isn't really necessary, it still comes to fruition, and therefore the Gemara says, that Rab's curse of Shmuel did come true. Ketanae, this whole issue about where's the source for the fact that the Mila is done to the male member, is actually Machloket Tanaim, Inayim the Mila, Shiboto Makom. How do I know that the Mila is done on the male member? Nemer Kana Urlato, says the same thing that So that's similar to what Rab had said. And now we have Rabbi Notan who brings a different source for it. Rabbi Notan Omer, you don't need that Gzera Shava, Omer, Arel Zachar, Asher Lo Yimolet Pesar Arlato, and Arel Zachar who doesn't do a Brit Milah is subject to the punishment of Karet, Makom Shnikar Ben Zichrut Nikvot. It's the area which is determinant as to whether the person is a male or a female, meaning that that's where you recognize whether they're a male or a female, and that's what it says, Varel Zachar, in the place of Zichrut or identity as a Zachar, that's where the Mila takes place. So again, as we saw earlier, that you can write tefillin on a kosher animal, or on a kosher wild animal. Not only is it true that you can use these animals when they are kosher, but even if they're not kosher, in particular, if they come from species that are kosher animals, that's okay. So you can use their nevelot or trefot of kosher animals. Venichrochot besaran, you wrap up the parshiot with the hairs from these kosher animals. Venitparot begidin, and you stitch up the batim of the tefillin with the sinews of these kosher animals. Alacha the Moshe Misinai. It is Alacha Moshe Misinai Mesorah. This is not explicit in the Psukim. Sheatfilin Nichrachot Bistaran Benitparot Begidan. That they have to be wrapped in the hair of those kosher animals and that they have to be stitched up. The Gidim that are used to stitch up the Batim come from these kosher animals. Aval. Enkodvim Lo Agabi Or Beimat Mea. Lo Gabi Or Chayat Mea. You can't use non-kosher animals in order to give you the cloth for its fill-in, that we already learned from before, which the Gemara will repeat again. And certainly, those animals that are not kosher, if they were nevelot and trefot, then certainly you can't use them. You can't wrap them up, the parshiot, you can't tie them up with the hair from a non-kosher animal. And you can't stitch up the batim with sinews from these non-kosher animals. So this question was asked by one of the Baitusim. Baitusim were these a similar group to the Tztukim that's mentioned about in Arvinatan that Sadok and Baitus were the Tomidim of Antigonus Isoho and went off the Derach because of his his saying that we see in Mishnah Abot, which is explicated on in, in the Abot and Rabinotan. That and they thought if there's no reward, then what is this all about? And they were porik all, and most of their issues were the drashot of the chachamim. They seemed to take the text of the Torah and Torah Shvakta very literally. They didn't have a Torah Shvalpeh, or they definitely did not subscribe to the Torah Shvalpeh of the Chachamim. We've noted many other times that they still need a Torah Shvalpeh because many of the terms in the Torah are undefined. And you see over here, there's some interaction between this Baitusi 
and Rabbi Yeshua Agarsi trying to understand exactly the halachot. If they wore tefillin, they needed some sort of misora as to how they made their tefillin and how their tefillin were put together. And so he's inquiring of someone of the Prushim who do have a Torah Shabbat Peh and do follow the Shita of the Chachamim as to what the source is for all these laws that are associated with the tefillin. How do you know you can't use non-kosher animals to write tefillin on? Like we saw above, that the Torah Hashem has to be able to go into your mouth. Something that is kosher to go into your mouth. So the Baitus says, it has to be kosher, it has to be something you can put in your mouth. Then nevelot and trefot, even from kosher animals, can't be eaten. So Rabbi Yoshua says back to him, I'll give you a parable. What is this similar to? They both were subject to a death penalty to the king. One of them was killed personally by the king. And one of them was killed by one of the messengers, one of the underlings of the king. Which one of them is better? Or which one would you consider to be of a higher authority or a higher consideration? There must be, must be the one that the king killed because he did it personally. It then elevates the status of that individual. Similarly, when it comes to an animal that's kosher because it was shechted, that was shechted b'bnei adam. Those are the messengers or the underlings of a Baruch The animal dies as a treifa or as a nevela, then it's killed by a Kodesh Baruch and therefore it should have a higher status and an elevated status and be even more proper to use or even better to use for its fill-in. So Le'ato the Baitus, he says to him, Ye'achlu, why can't you eat them? The Torah specifically says you can't eat a nevela. So yes, it might have a higher status because it was killed by a Kodesh Baruch but nevertheless, the Torah still restricts the eating of such an animal. And you say that they should be eaten? Doesn't make any sense. In Aramaic, kalos means to praise. Over here it seems to be it's the Greek version of the word. But praise be you that you gave a great explanation and you helped me understand this subject. The Bible Tosafot already point out that it's not such a great answer because there are many animals that die but at the hands of human beings that are considered to be nevelot. If it wasn't shechted, but it was killed in a different manner, that's also a nevelah. And that's kosher to be used for it to fill in, despite the fact that it wasn't killed by a Kodesh Baruch Hu. What Tosafo points out is that once you see that nevelot and shreifot that are killed by Hashem are allowed to be used, that shows you that we don't take mutar b'ficha so literally. And once we don't take it so literally, then we can expand it to include other items, even if they're not killed by a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And now we move on to the next Mishnah. It says, Enosim Helmei Shabbat. You're not allowed to make this concentrated salt water solution on Shabbat. Salt water of that type of concentration was used in general for the processing of hides. So over here, you're not processing the hides. You're using it for food. And therefore, we worry about if you're using it for food, it might look like it is similar to Ma'abed, tanning the processing of items on Shabbat. There is a machloket earlier in the Masech as to whether there's ibud by ochlim or any ibud by ochlim, but it seems to me that that machloket is only on a do-right-to level, is a Torah-level argument. But midra banan, everybody seems to agree that there is still a problem of ibud ochlim, and that might be the sense of what we're going to get from this Mishnah as well as the remainder of the Gemara here. So the Rambam over here, to avoid that problem of the Machloka back on Ayin Hei with regards to Ibu Dochlim, explains that the problem over here is the problem of Bishul. And that we have in the Ilchot Yeridea, that Kavush is Harehuke Mivushal. That when you pickle something in a strong brine, and you leave it there over a duration of time, that has the same status as cooking, and therefore it's considered to be a preparation of food on Shabbat, 
as a derivative of Mivashel, according to the Rambam. And the Ritva adds on the possibility that maybe it's Uvdin Dechol. Looks like you're doing work that is normally done on a weekday. And that might be associated with the fact that the Malacha of doing this type of pickling or brine that was very strong was to create preservatives of the items. And those items that then are preserved are kept for a long duration. It's equivalent to the Ramban's explanation of Malachet Avodah with regards to Yom Tov. What Malachot are allowed on Yom Tov, those are things that are immediately necessary for the day. Things that are for longer duration or you do in large quantities, those are things that are considered Malachet Avodah and even a Surot on Yom Tov. And similarly over here, maybe the problem according to the Ritva is that this is Uvdin Dechol. When you process items in this way, they're not for today to be used. They're not making them edible today or used today. They're for long-term storage and therefore it's Uvdin Dechol that is not relevant or appropriate on Shabbat. But the Mishnah qualifies and says, Avosehu me melach betovel you can make salt water and dip your bread in it. You can use it as a dip or as a salad dressing, and that's fine. You can add it into whatever you're cooking. Rabbi Yossi says, I don't understand. There should be no difference between how salty or how concentrated the item is. Either way, it's salt water. So it doesn't matter if it's heavily salted salt water or it's lightly salted salt water. There should be no difference between them. The Gemara asks, which direction is he going in? Elohein may melach hamutarim. Which are the salt water that are mutar to be used? Notain shemen lechatchila. You put in oil first, either the tochamayim or the tochamelach. You add oil to the salt, or you add oil to the water, and then you add the second ingredient. So if you did oil and water, you add the salt afterwards. If you did oil and salt, then you add the water afterwards. And that is because the shemen tempers the strength or the concentration of the melach, and it takes away from its potency. And so once you put in the oil, it takes away from the strength or the power of this brine or pickling that you've created. If you put the salt and water together first, you can't do that because then you already created the brine, and then you're only mitigating it afterwards with the shaman. You have to put the shaman with one of the ingredients first, and then afterwards put in the other ingredient. Kamar says, my kamar, what is he saying? Meaning the Mishnah says there's me melach and hilmi. What's the difference between the two of them? It's saying that hilmi is salt water that has a high concentration of salt. Meimelach has a low concentration of salt. One is impermissible on Shabbat. The other one is permitted on Shabbat. Why does it make a difference what the concentration is? Says there's no difference between them. Is he saying that they're both mutar or are they both asur? Some review the Atir. Must be that he's coming to be matir. Because it doesn't say Rabbi Yossi thinks that it's asur. It says that Rabbi Yossi says there shouldn't be any differentiation between them. And since the Mishnah left off with the thing that is mutar, then you wouldn't have Rabbi Yossi say, Rabbi Yossi Omer mutar, because he's then referencing back to something that the Chamim agrees is mutar. So if he contrasted and said Asur, then we would have known that it meant Asur. Over here, he doesn't do that. He opts to say that if they're the same, that seems to indicate he thinks that they're both mutarim. So the Mesef ends off, These are the Meimelach that are allowed to be used, meaning that it seems to be a continuation of Rabbi Yossi's statement, saying, this is Mutar. That means that what he was saying before means, I think that this is Asur. Rabbi says he came to be Osir, it's to say there's no difference between high and low concentrated salt water. Rabbi Yochanan agrees to simile explanation that Rabbi Yossi here is coming to be Osir. We have a brighter that is supportive of that reading. You're not allowed to make heavily salt-concentrated 
brines that you put into the shards of pottery, because that's what they used to hold the pickling in. But you're allowed to make a low salt concentrated mixture. You can dip your bread into it, and you can add it to your cooking. Why? Just because one is highly concentrated, one is less concentrated, one should be asur, one should be mutar. You're going to say now that if you do a big malacha, it's a problem, or you do a small malacha, it's not a problem. Why do you have gradations within the din or within a malacha? They're both problematic. What are the salt water concentrations that are allowed? You make a mixture of either oil and salt or oil and water. As long as you don't put the salt and the water in first, as long as you get the shemin in first, then that will mitigate or temper the concentration of the salt water or the potency of the salt water. You're not allowed to make very strong meimelach. My meimelach azin. What does it mean, very strong meimelach? It seems to me that the Gemara is following that this is the psak that the Chachamim's shita is correct, and therefore the problem here is Hilme. And the Gemara's question basically is, what does it mean that you have strong or concentrated salt water that is problematic? Rabbi Rabbi Yosef, Ba'aba, Da'amrei Tarvayu, they both say, If you submerge an egg into this salt water and it floats to the top, it's unable to sink in it, that's a concentration of salt already that's high enough to be considered a zin, and then it's problematic. Vikama. How much is that? Give us some quantitative measure of what it is. Two-thirds salt, and one-third water. A mixture of two-thirds salt, one-third water, that's a high enough concentration where it's problematic. What do people use this type of highly concentrated salt water for? They use it for fish brine. You're not allowed to salt radishes and eggs on Shabbat. Radishes are problematic. Whereas an egg is fine. So Rashi over here explains that the problem over here is that if you do three or four slices together, so then the melach preserves them and they become hard. And that is a tikkun ochel, somewhat similar to what the... Rambam says, with regards to it being a toladav, tavshil, a derivative of tavshil, Rashi over here says that you're doing something, again, that involves a number of pieces. You're doing the tikkun on Shabbat, so you're doing something that's similar to ibud. And if we say that ibud ochlim is problematic, at least me the Rabbanan, according to everyone, then that's problematic, or you're doing some sort of thing, according to the Ritva, which has duration to it, because now you're preserving these items for long duration, and therefore it's problematic. So the first opinion of Rabbi Yehuda Bar Chaviva says that's problematic by Tznon and by Beitzah, whereas Rav Chizkiah says that Tznon is problematic, but a Beitzah is not problematic. And the reason for his differentiation is because people don't usually preserve eggs in this way, and the salt water is not so effective with regards to the beitzah. And therefore, it's not a problem with the beitzah. I used to salt my radishes. That it's actually detrimental to the radish when I salt them. So I'm not making a tikkun. I'm not improving them on Shabbat. I'm actually doing something that ruins them. Because Shmuel says, Pugla male. The more potent, the stronger the radish is, the better it is. So here, when the salt mitigates that potency, then it's detrimental. After I heard this thing, that when Ula came, then in Eretz Yisrael, they salt circles and circles, or piles and piles 
of them. So you see that people do it, and people see that as an improvement. Not necessarily on Shabbat they were doing it, but the fact that they did it in general shows you that they see it as that as a tikkun. Mimalach lo mechano. I stopped salting them on Shabbat. But I still dipped them into salt water or into salt on Shabbat because that wasn't making them into preservative. That was just for flavor and that's not a problem. Tani, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Chaviva, Etrog Tznonu Beitzah, with these three food items, Yomalei Klipatan, Maichitunat, they did not have an outer layer, they would not leave your digestive tract forever, and that is because they would harden because of the digestive system, and they would never be released. So their outer klipa protects that from happening. So by an etrog and a snow, and it's understandable. One of them has a skin around it. It's known as a, the radish has a thin red layer around it. Beitzah has a shell around it. And Rashi points out here that you can't be speaking about the shell because that's not something that's edible. Rather, it's speaking about the albumin, the white of the egg that's around it. That surrounds the yolk, and that makes it that the yolk is digestible when the white goes in around it. And that's why it's being suggested over here. Otherwise, the digestive system will cause the hardening of them. Similarly to what we saw with the salty water that causes a hardening of these items when they're preserved in very concentrated salt water. The Dead Sea has this feature to it that nobody ever drowns in the Dead Sea. When the Romans came and invaded and they conquered the Jewish armies, they were curious about the Dead Sea. And there are stories brought in Josephus where they used to take out Jewish captives into the Dead Sea and throw them into the water. They didn't know how to swim, but they never drowned, and they were shocked or surprised or amazed by that which they saw. So we know that there is this feature about the Dead Sea that everybody floats in the Dead Sea. Samarav Yosef, hafucha sadom, hafucha milah. He says, stone was overturned. And this statement of Rabdimi seems to be upside down or problematic. You're going to tell me people don't sink in the Dead Sea, but a board of wood would sink in the sea or other items would sink in that Dead Sea? He's saying not only. You don't have to ask me about a board that it won't sink in the Dead Sea. In any ocean or any saltwater body, it would not sink. So, of course, in the Dead Sea, it doesn't sink. When it comes to individuals and any other salt water body, they would sink and they would drown. When it comes to the Dead Sea, they do not drown. What's the halachic ramification of this? It's because of what Ravin teaches us. He was trailing after, walking after Rabbi Yirmiya, Aguda the Yama the Stone, on the banks of the Dead Sea. Can I take some of that water and put it in my eye on Shabbat? So it seems to me that it had some sort of medicinal quality, which is interesting because the Gemara in other places says that Melach Stomit, the salt from the Dead Sea, is can blind one, and therefore you have to wash my machronim. Over here now you're putting the salt water from the Dead Sea into the eye, and it's medicinally curative. So it must be there's a difference between the salt and the salt water. You're allowed to do that on Shabbat. It's not any violation of gauging in medicinal cures on Shabbat because it just looks like you're washing out your eye. What about closing my eye tightly and opening it up in order to wash it around and to make it work? I didn't hear anything directly about this. But I did hear something similar that should answer the question. Sometimes he said it over in the name of Marukva. Sometimes he said it over in the name of Ravmatna. And both of them said it over in the name of either Avuah or Levi. There are two items here. 
And each one of them said one of these two items, Avodah Shmuel and Levi. Chadamar yayin betoch ha'ayin asur, al-gabe mutar. You're allowed to put wine on the surface of the eye. You're not allowed to put wine into the eye. It's the equivalent of what we were saying over here, which is that you're allowed to wash out your eyes with wine, similar to the way that you wash it with water. People wouldn't th- think anything of that. People who are healthy do such a thing, and therefore it's not problematic at all because you're acting like a healthy person and it doesn't look like you're practicing medicine. The other hand, if you put it into the eye, meaning that you open and close and you do a lot of things to force the wine into the eye, then that would be problematic because then you're behaving in a manner that indicates you're doing it for medicinal purposes. It seems to be that the wine, the alcohol in the wine, was beneficial to the eye or cleansing out the eye, and therefore people washed with it. The other, Chadamar, wrote Tafel, when it comes to saliva that has yet to taste any food in the morning, Afila Gava Ayin Asur, even on the surface of the eye is problematic because the only people who put saliva into the eye, maybe because of the acidic concentrations in it that are helpful, that is problematic because nobody does that unless they're doing it for medicinal purposes and practicing medicine or engaging in things that are medicinal on Shabbat is problematic because of we're afraid that you're going to grind up the medicines or grind up medicine on Shabbat. Let us conclude that that's the statement of because we have a statement from Shmuel he's not to soak his bread in wine and he puts it on top of his eye on Shabbat. So again, that would be something that's considered to be normal practices even of healthy people and it seems to be only on the surface of the eye is okay. He doesn't say you can put it into the eye. Where did he get that Mesorah from? Love the Shmuel Mavua. Must have heard it from his father. So it must be that Shmuel got that from his father Avud the Shmuel. According to your reasoning, Adam Shmuel wrote Tafel Afilo Gavayin Asur. That when it comes to Rok Tafel, you're not allowed to put it even on the surface of the eye. That's also said by Shmuel the Shmuel Miman. Who did he hear that from? He learned the Shmuel Mavua. He heard it from his father. Now you're leaving Levi without attribution for either one of these statements, because Shmuel based both of them. And if Shmuel got it from his father, then Levi's left out of this. It must be that Shmuel heard one of them from his father, one of them from Levi, and we don't know which one came from which individual. Therefore, that's the answer to the question that he asked. Yes, you're allowed to put the salt water from the Dead Sea on your eye like a rinse and rinse out your eye. That's fine. But if you're going to open and close your eye and force the water into your eye using it in a medicinal manner, that would be problematic, similar to what we said by the wine. Just like by the wine, you can put it on the surface of the eye or wash out the eye like other people would do or healthy people would do. What you can't do is do it in a manner that only if somebody had an eye ailment or somebody was using it medicinally would have done. Some of my ukvam are small. Adam kilorin me'erev Shabbat. Person's allowed to soak kolorim, which was an eye salve, me'er of Shabbat, before Shabbat. Shabbat. And one is allowed to put it on their eye on Shabbat. And you don't have to worry about it. He was learning or present in front of Marukva. He saw that he had put the kolorim in his eye, but he was making efforts to squeeze his eye, open his eye, to move it around in a medicinal manner. Shmuel only allowed you to put it in like a normal person would put it in, to use it in a way that is medicinal in nature, that you can't do. To make all that effort to spread it around, that's already too much, and even Shmuel would agree that you can't do that. Rabbi Yanai sent to Marukva, who seems to be that he was close with Shmuel, and he spent a lot of time with them. Send us some of that great kolorim, of my Shmuel to help out with our eyes. 
I'm definitely going to send it to you. that I'm not a miserly individual and I'm not generous. I'm going to send it to you, but you don't really need it. If you wash out with cold water in the morning, and you wash your hands and feet with hot water at night, it does better or it's more efficacious than all of the kilorin that you have in the world. And we have a brighter that supports that contention. A rinse of cold water in the morning in Chamin is better than any Korlarim or any ice salve that you can get in the world. Meaning that you don't need it. I'll send it to you, but you don't really need it. There's a better solution that is a simple, natural solution, and you don't need this kolorim. What's interesting about this Gemara is that the Balia Tosafot, as Rabbi Kivayger points out, back on Daf Yud Cherem and Aleph, quote this Gemara, and are a little surprised by this Gemara, based on what we saw back on Daf Yud Chet, Amun Aleph, which is that you're allowed to put something on an Arab Shabbat, and let it go and be curative throughout Shabbat, but you can't put it on on Shabbat itself. Yet our Gemara seems to indicate that you could even put it on Shabbat. As long as you prepared it before Shabbat, you could put it on your eye, even on Shabbat. So what's the difference? Why over there on Daf Yudchet we don't let you put it on on Shabbat, only Arab Shabbat? But here we let you put it on Shabbat. So Tosava differentiates between our Gemara that's speaking about a Bari, a healthy individual, and therefore he's not putting it on for medicinal purposes, but he's putting it on to give some sort of pleasure or gives a nice feeling towards his eye, or maybe even improves his eye, but it's not something where he's ailing in any way. Whereas the Gemara on Daf Yudchet, which says you must put on before Shabbat and not on Shabbat itself, is an individual who already has an eye ailment, and therefore he's trying to use it outright for refuah, there you need to put on before Shabbat, you can't put on Shabbat itself. That's the answer of the Bali Tosafot. Tosafot Yishanim over there gives an alternate answer. Over there he's not putting it on a bandage with the colorium on the bandage. Over there he soaked it in water. So when it's soaked in water, it looks more like a regular rinse, so that it looks like he's just washing out his eyes. So first of all, he's not going to get confused because he soaked it in water. Other people are not going to get confused because they just see him washing with water. They don't know there's cholerium in it. And that's why over there you can do it on Shabbat. Over here, where it's on a bandage, and it's the solid cholerium that you're putting on, it's clear that he's doing it for medicinal purposes. So both the individual doing it is going to think you can perform medicine or you can crush up medicine on Shabbat, as well as other people seeing him are not going to think he's doing this in a natural way. He's just doing this like other people would do this. He's definitely doing it for medicinal purposes. But they also would get the wrong impression. And that's how... Tosvet Yishanim differentiates between the Gemara back on Yudchet and the Gemara on Kufchet Amudbet. And we're going to stop here, two lines from the bottom of Kufchet Amudbet.